0: This week, weird ancient mammals. Where? Madagascar, of course. You would probably confuse
1: it with a very, very large rodent, but beneath all of the hair and the skin, there are very, very unique features.
2: And the perception of taste.
3: The combination of notes can be interpreted by the brain to produce a symphony.
0: Plus a tiny particle accelerator. Well, it's not that small, but everything's relative. This is The Nature Podcast for November the 6th, 2014. I'm Jeff Marsh.
2: And I'm Kerry Smith.
0: The late Cretaceous was a hairy time to be a mammal. The vast majority were mouse-sized morsels scampering around the feet of an impressive diversity of exotic predators, which, by the way, included the soon-to-snuff-it dinosaurs. And they were living on an equally exotic map. 60 million years ago, the shapes of today's continents are there, but they're in the wrong places. In the Southern Hemisphere, one giant supercontinent called Gondwana was breaking up into the landmasses that we recognise today. And Gondwana was the home of the Gondwanatheres, a mysterious group of early mammals. Mysterious because all paleontologists knew of them was a handful of teeth. But recently, an entire skull of a relatively ginormous specimen was found on Madagascar, which had been an island for tens of millions of years at that point. Paleontologist David Krause is at Stony Brook University. He's been a Gondwanathir fan for two decades, and his team found the skull. I asked him where they found it, and with all these wandering continents, where and when that placed it when it died.
1: The strata that we've been working in are all of late Cretaceous age. So this is at the end of the age of dinosaurs, the, the Mesozoic era. Roughly this places it at about 66 million years or slightly older than that. At that time, Madagascar was about 15 degrees further south in latitude than it is today.
0: And if one of these animals was sat on the table in front of me, what would it look like?
1: You would probably confuse it with a very, very large rodent. But beneath all of the hair and the skin, there are very, very unique features that show us that there's absolutely no way that it could have been a rodent or in any way involved in the ancestry of rodents.
0: And it's reported to have been much bigger than all the other Gondwanatheres we've found before.
1: We've done estimates of its body size, its body mass, and it comes in at about 9 kilograms. So for the Mesozoic era, that is absolutely enormous. Most of the mammals that lived during the age of dinosaurs, in the shadow of dinosaurs as it were, were shrew and mouse sized. And this place is our new form, which we've called Vintana to be by far the largest Mesozoic mammal from the Southern Hemisphere, and it's only bested by one specimen from China. So it was indeed uh, a big animal.
0: As you said, everything we knew about the Gondwanatheres has been based on just a few teeth. Now that we've got this entire skull to scrutinize, what else could you find out about its physiology?
1: Well, we've looked in quite a bit of detail by using micro CT scanning so we were able to look inside the nasal cavity and inside the brain case and everywhere we look it's quite a bizarre animal and it has this unique combination of features some of which are incredibly primitive that we haven't seen in the fossil record except in things like mammal like reptiles that lived a hundred million years before and then in contrast to that are some features that are very very advanced and bizarre and unique aspects of the brain, for instance. The brain is, was tilted at a very peculiar angle. It had features of its inner ear that are only seen in mammals that lived considerably later than that. And we also know from looking at some details of its anatomy that it had probably quite good eyesight in low light conditions. And then inside of its brain case, we can tell from the very, very large olfactory bulbs that it probably had a keen sense of smell.
0: This animal, Vintana, then, was isolated on Madagascar for for tens of millions of years. What kind of habitat was it living in, and, and what kind of predators would it have been up against?
1: We know that the environment that Vintana lived in was a lowland coastal floodplain environment, and we also know from various paleoclimatic indicators that it was a highly seasonal environment. There were long dry seasons and short wet seasons, and Vintina is one of the many bizarre animals that we found, so again this is at the end of the Cretaceous and at that time there were dinosaurs and frogs and snakes and a whole manner of crocodiles as well and one of them was actually a plant eater. There was a frog that lived alongside Vintina that was one of the largest frogs of all time that was actually quite a vicious predator. It was not a very kind environment that the lived in, and perhaps that may explain uh, somewhat of its large size that uh again, this kind of arms race between predators and prey that uh, it was it was tending towards a large size so that uh, uh, the smaller predators couldn't couldn't
0: handle it. and do we know anything about its relationship to the ancestors of modern mammals?
1: We know that it belongs to a group that includes the modern day monotremes, which are the platypus and the echidna. And we believe that it also belongs to the much larger group called Mammalia that includes our ancestors. But Gondwanatherians were off doing their own thing. They were clearly not closely related to our ancestors or even to the Monotreme ancestors. That They just belonged to a much broader group that includes those forms. But in terms of its own unique specializations, it was evolving on its own in isolation Uh, totally independent of our ancestors.
0: On its way to extinction. Yes, on its way to extinction, exactly. David Krause there on the line from Stony Brook University in New York.
2: In the research highlights how living in the past can be good for you and chimps planning their breakfasts. But first, probably some of you are eating while you listen to this. Morning coffee, chicken sandwich, cheeky chocolate bar... Stop and think about the taste of those things for a second. We can sense five main taste groups. Salty, sweet, bitter, sour, and a slightly mysterious fifth taste, umami, that savoury taste you get from miso soup, or sun-dried tomatoes, or parmesan. We know that there are receptors on the tongue and palate that help detect these tastes. And they're very specific. Some just respond to sour, others only to sweet, etc. But then those signals get sent onwards to the brain.
3: And what happens there? It's been a matter of significant debate.
2: That's Nick Reber, a scientist at the National Institutes of Health in the US, who's been studying taste for a couple of decades. His team has recently been trying to work out how information about so-called tastants, just things that taste of stuff, is processed in the brain when it first gets there.
3: Many people have suggested that the message that taste and to the brain is much more broadly tuned than the message that we saw being recorded at the level of the tongue.
2: Broadly tuned, that means that the brain cells in this first brain gateway are multitaskers, responding to a few different tastes at different times, or mostly to sweet but sometimes to sour, that sort of thing. But the trouble is it's really hard to measure the area of the brain where these neurons sit. It's four millimetres below the surface of the mouse brain, which doesn't sound like much, but that's basically the whole thing. Reba's team figured out a method, though, involving a special type of microscopy, and it allowed them to test their hypothesis about how tastes from the tongue are passed on.
3: Well, we have always imagined that it would be transmitted in a straightforward way to the brain, but we had no proof of that. And so it was extremely rewarding When we started to measure responses that were robust and they were very specific, a vast majority of the neurons look exactly like the taste receptor cells, just exactly as we'd have expected.
2: But as anyone who's ever eaten anything knows, there's more to taste than just taste buds. Taste and smell are partners in flavour, and even visual cues can change what we think of tastes. Charles Spence works on some of these multi-sensory effects at his lab at the University of Oxford.
4: We've done years of work on colouring foods and showing them if we change the colour of a drink, say, can we make it sweeter or change what you think the flavour will be. If I gave you something that was purple uh, to taste as a jelly or as a drink, your brain might think uh, black currant. But if I just change a kind of fruit acid composition, even in ways that you can't tell, then I, I can flip your percept in sort of um, beetroot instead. So exactly the same colour, can mean one flavour or another beetroot or blackcurrant.
2: Just in case you're wondering how they test out all these crazy combinations
4: of foods... So we have a chef in residence in the lab in Oxford.
2: Spence has even worked with celebrity chef Heston Blumenthal to invent sense-subverting foods like bacon and egg ice cream and a pair of jellies, beetroot and orange, that taste of each other's flavours. He also wonders if the tongue is as basic as just these five tastes, salty,
4: sweet, bitter, sour and umami. Are those all the tastes we can get, are those all the things we can sense just on the tongue, or are there more? And there's kind of a lot of debate currently about just how many basic tastes are there. Some would say there are 20 different basic tastes that our tongue is sensitive to. And then, of
2: course, there's the rest of the brain. The mini-brain area that Reba and his team were studying, the geniculate ganglion, is a tiny gateway to the rest of a giant, complicated system. Reba's colleague has a good way of describing the relationships of the tongue and ganglion to the rest of the brain's apparatus.
3: He likens it to a piano, so the key would be the uh, taste receptor cell that activates a specific wire and generates a note that the brain perceives. But the combination of notes can be interpreted by the brain uh, to produce a, a symphony. Other researchers have found surprising
2: versions of this symphony, says Charles Spence. The names are as weird as the sensations surely are.
4: Traditionally, psychologists and neuroscientists think that each sort of sense sort of does its own work, its process individually, and then they come together and integrate, and maybe you, you feed some of that information back down to some uh, level. About some research a couple of years ago, I think in the mouse also, showed that in fact there is kind of direct connections from the, from the ear to the nose, with what you call smound, and that no one knew existed, and just quite why they're there, what role they serve, really just get you thinking about other kinds of ways the senses might interact.
2: Smounds like an odd experience. Meanwhile, Reber isn't one for bacon and egg ice cream. He's content to trace more intricate patterns
3: on a smaller scale. I mean, the brain is such a, a wonderful mystery, and uh, understanding even small parts of how it works is, is so rewarding.
2: That was Nick Reber, and before him Charles Spence. You can find Reber's team's new paper on taste in the mouse brain at nature.com slash nature. And for more on multisensory perception and eating, Charles Spence's new book is called The Perfect Meal.
0: Coming up, a particle accelerator that isn't the size of a small European country. But first, it's the research highlights. Here's Charlotte Stoddart.
5: Living in the past can sometimes be good for you. Reminiscing feels so good that people value it more highly than money. A team of neuroscientists wanted to know whether remembering happy events would activate the brain's reward network. They scanned people's brains while they got nostalgic about holidays or remembered boring supermarket visits. When people thought of happy things, their brain activity was similar to that seen in people receiving money. When they were offered cash for recalling memories, more for the boring ones, they were more likely to choose fond memories and give up the cash. The results are in Neuron. Breakfast is the most important meal of the day for chimpanzees. Chimps love figs, and when the ripe fruit is scarce, they plan carefully where they'll get breakfast and when. Don't we all? A group of primatologists studied the early morning meanderings of five wild chimps and spotted them setting off earlier when figs were hard to come by. They often left before sunrise, This desire to beat the crowds even extended to planning for the next day. The fig-loving chimps would position their nests in the direction of the best breakfast bounty. Such flexible planning may have supported the evolution of our own calorie-hungry brains. Mmm, croissants. Check out PNAS for more.
0: The last 50 years have seen particle accelerators growing bigger and bigger in an attempt to achieve higher and higher energy levels. But conventional atom smashers like the Large Hadron Collider and planned successes such as the International Linear Collider are tens of kilometres long, costing billions of dollars. Practically, accelerators just can't grow any bigger, so new techniques to accelerate particles over smaller distances are well needed. Mike Letos from the SLAC National Accelerator Laboratory and his team might have an answer. They've successfully demonstrated a technique that accelerates electrons on waves of plasma. They've produced bunches of electrons with energies up to 500 times higher than they could get over the same distance in a conventional accelerator, which could mean a new generation of smaller, cheaper or more powerful accelerators. Nature reporter Lizzie Gibney spoke to Mike.
6: So we already have accelerators like the Large Hadron Collider that's been hugely successful. Why do we need better ways to build accelerators?
7: The Large Hadron Collider represents pretty much the largest scale collider at the high-energy frontier that is feasible to build in terms of the actual size, the footprint of the machine, and the cost to build and operate it. So if we want to keep pushing the energy frontier higher and higher, explore more and more fundamental physics, we need to think about a completely new way of accelerating our particles.
6: So you've come up with this completely new way. Tell me a bit about how it works.
7: An important thing to understand is that particle accelerators don't shoot out a continuous stream of particles. They actually fire the particles in these small little tight clusters called bunches. They're fired out at rapid succession like a machine gun. So in a conventional accelerator, these particle bunches are accelerated by traveling through a metallic structure, which basically channels uh, radio frequency waves, and the particles ride those radio frequency waves and get boosted up to higher energies. With a metallic structure, there are some fundamental limits as far as how high the fields can be inside those structures before you start to see breakdown of the material. So what we've done is instead of using a metallic structure, we use a plasma to contain those high electric fields. The advantage of using a plasma is that the material is already broken down. So you can essentially sustain unlimited high electric fields to accelerate the particles.
6: So you fire your bunches of electrons into the plasma. What happens? How do you actually speed them up?
7: What we use is actually two bunches of electrons. One bunch is sent in first, and that one creates the wake within the plasma. So it pushes all of the plasma electrons out of the way. The second bunch of electrons, which is the one that we want to accelerate, is traveling just behind the first bunch, and it's inside this little wake structure. And so our second bunch of electrons is traveling inside of this little wake toward the back of it where the electric fields are extremely high. And what you end up doing is transferring the energy from this first bunch of electrons, the drive bunch we call it, that drives the wake, to the second bunch of electrons that's trailing behind it. And you can transfer a lot of energy in a very short amount of space. So it's like that trailing bunch of electrons is kind of riding on this wave of energy in the plasma electrons.
6: So what kind of an improvement are we talking about here?
7: So when we talk about accelerators and their ability to accelerate particles, we typically use a parameter that we call the accelerating gradient, which means how much energy can be transferred to the particles over a certain distance, and so the gradient that we can achieve using our technique of plasma wake field acceleration can be an improvement on the order of a thousand times higher than a conventional accelerator.
6: Wow, so we could make accelerators a thousand times smaller.
7: more realistically speaking, when we compare a design for uh, what could work as a next generation linear electron positron collider, for example, and we compare to very mature design studies on machines like the International Linear Collider, otherwise known as the ILC, or the Compact Linear Collider, otherwise known as CLIC. Those machines are designed to be on the order of 30 to 50 kilometers in length. And if we were to use plasma wakefield acceleration for the uh, accelerating mechanism, we could reduce those machines probably by about an order of magnitude.
6: And would we just be able to make them smaller and cheaper or could we use the same technology to make mega energetic colliders? Could we make them even uh, go up to even higher energies?
7: Well, right. That's the other alternative. If you already know you're going to build a collider of a given size, then you could use this technology to potentially reach higher and higher energies.
6: It sounds like a great technology. Can we whack it in our accelerators tomorrow or is there a, a lot of work left to do? (laughs)
7: Well, doing something like building a very complex, large, and uh, high-performance machine like a particle collider for particle physics, that's probably a little ways off. But perhaps along the way, an intermediate step would be taking a single-stage plasma wakefield accelerator, meaning a stage on the order of one to a few meters in length, and sticking that in at the end of an existing accelerator and giving a large energy boost in a very short amount of space.
6: Does that mean we'd be able, if we can produce these um, much smaller and cheaper, could we end up with lots more accelerators out there dotted around the world, maybe in universities even?
7: Sure. I would definitely like to imagine that maybe this could allow uh, more tabletop size applications of high energy particle colliders and particle accelerators. Accelerators are used in many, many, many different applications besides just particle colliders or even beyond just uh, light sources such as the X ray laser here at Slack.
6: And it it uses electrons, right, whereas the LHC at the moment uses protons. Would that be another um, big challenge to face to, to actually scale up to much heavier protons?
7: It could potentially be used for other particles as well. But the big challenge there is that a much heavier particle like a proton needs to have a very high energy to be traveling at a speed that's, say, 99.9% the speed of light, in order to remain in a stable location relative to the drive bunch over a long distance. Electrons and positrons are very light, so they can actually travel very close to the speed of light at low energies, which is why this mechanism works very well for accelerating them.
0: That was Mike Letos talking to our very own Lizzie Gibney.
2: Finally, it's time for the News Chat, and we have a special guest in the London studio. It's Lauren Morello, news editor, joining us from the Washington DC office. Welcome to London. It's been a bad week, hasn't it, for spacecraft? It's been a bad week for commercial
8: spaceflight specifically. On October 28th, the Antares rocket headed to the space station, which was launched by Orbital Sciences, a private company for NASA. Exploded on the launch pad, and then on the 31st, unfortunately, uh, Spaceship Two, the rocket plane developed by Richard Branson's company Virgin
2: Galactic, disintegrated in the air, and uh, one of its pilots died. Right. I mean, if the first one, Antares, uh, as you say, was um, is being launched by a private company that NASA contracts, and it was on its way to the International Space Station to deliver some some scientific experiments, among other things.
8: Right. It was a mixed payload. Some of what it was carrying um, was just supplies for the space station. And it was also um, carrying some experiments with it. There were several satellites on board. Um, One of them was for a Japanese project looking at uh, meteors. Another one was an experimental probe for a project that's trying to identify asteroids uh, that might be good for mining. And I believe there was some kind of experiment targeted at eventually perhaps growing pea shoots on the space station for astronauts to eat.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, And those have all been lost. But there are at least some backups for some of these experiments.
8: Right. The bigger problem now is just that there's a little bit of a bottleneck in the supply chain. This was the third of eight launches that Orbital Orbital is uh, supposed to carry out for NASA. And it came just as NASA is really starting to try and ramp
2: up the science that's done on the space station. Now, um, as you mentioned, the second story, really much more tragic. One of the pilots from the Virgin Galactic uh, flight was actually killed. This was a test flight, wasn't it, of Spaceship Two?
8: This was a test flight of Spaceship Two um, uh, out in Mojave, California. The way that they're testing this plane is it's carried up to an altitude by another plane. It's released, and at that point, its rocket engines fire, and it broke apart in midair. And there are some early indications that the tail on the plane was not behaving the way that it was supposed
2: to. Um, There appears to be some pilot error, but it's very early days. But they've got, I mean, they had a ton of cameras on board this thing. They've got a lot of evidence to sift through as to what actually went wrong here.
8: Right. Test flights like this are usually monitored to an extreme degree. So there wasn't a, a black box on the plane necessarily the way that you would have with a an airplane flight that you or I might take, but there were cameras and recorders um, and that's going to help with the investigation according to uh, the head of the U.S. government agency that's taking a look at what happened. These two accidents aren't just a coincidence, I guess, this week. They are. um, With the the Virgin Galactic plane, that's a little more experimental. Um, NASA in its history, especially in the early days of the space program, had accidents, some of them unfortunately fatal. And I think this reminds us Uh, of those. And the Antares launch launch is just um, probably pure bad luck. NASA itself has lost a couple of climate satellites with rocket problems in the last few years. So um, it's unfortunate, but not unprecedented.
2: All right. Moving on then to the second story that you've brought. Uh, This is by reporter Dan Cressy, and it has to do with the World Parks Congress, which is a giant meeting that starts uh, next week in Sydney.
8: Right. So this meeting is held once a decade. This time around, it's focusing specifically on marine parks, and it's being held in Australia, the home of the Great Barrier Reef, which has long been considered the best managed uh, marine park in the world. But um, the Great Barrier Reef has kind of hit some
2: rough water. Some vital statistics about the Great Barrier Reef include of the fact that it's the size of Japan. I mean, you can't just picture a little coral reef and think, oh, that must be it. There are more
8: than 3,000 individual reefs that make up the Great Barrier Reef, and some folks consider it kind of the largest living structure on Earth. And so right now it's, it's managed in this kind of zone system that allows fishing in some areas and tourism in some areas and, and keeps others off limits, and that's worked well for a long time. But um, earlier this year there was some talk of a development project that would have put dredging spoils into the ocean, near a section of of the reef, and uh, UNESCO, the UN agency that oversees places of historical and ecological interest, actually threatened to list the Great Barrier Reef as being at
2: risk if that development project went through. Right, so this sounds like the sort of golden child of conservation losing its sheen.
8: It's true. The Australian um, commission that manages the, the reef actually put out a report earlier this year saying its prognosis was poor and getting worse. Um, and the question now is whether... Uh, It's a short-term problem brought about by some bad storms a few years ago and the arrival of uh, some invasive species or whether this is a longer-term problem related to things like pollution from land and climate change, which is obviously not something that the managers of Great Barrier Reef can solve for themselves, but they can find ways to take stress off coral. As they're dealing with, you know, rising temperatures and more acidic
2: waters from carbon dioxide emissions. I mean, how much is this a kind of global problem, and how much is it Australia's problem to try and, um, you know, preserve and, and protect the reef?
8: You know, it's tricky. Some of this is directly Australia's Australia's problem. The debate over the industrial development is is a purely Australian thing. Um, with climate change, Australia can't solve that problem by itself, but they can definitely take steps to kind of help the reef be as healthy as possible in the face of these global threats. And then there's also a value in Australia taking good care of the reef since it's been such a symbol of conservation and kind of a lesson to other nations.
2: All right, well, uh, keep your eyes peeled to nature.com slash news for more coverage as the park's congress starts and progresses. Uh, Lauren Morello, thank you very much. Thanks, Kerry.
0: And thanks to you lot too for listening. Great to have you with us. Join us again next week. In the meantime, check out the news site from Wednesday next week because Lizzie Gibney, who you heard earlier, will be at Rosetta HQ watching as the spacecraft launches its little lander onto Comet 67P. Space nerd out. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Jeff Marsh.